0: Blessed Sabbath, how are you on this, the Lord's Day? I love the way the Jews put it. This is the day that the Lord has made, and I will rejoice in it. Gladness ought to fill your heart as you get to interact with the God who still speaks. Whether it's from Sinai, or from a burning bush, or an ark in a temple, or into your heart, today we celebrate the God who speaks. And He's going to speak to us as we talk about choices on this morning. From the pages of the book that we've been studying this whole quarter, can you believe it? As the year draws to a close, so does our study on the book of Deuteronomy. And now, as we always do, I'm going to start by simply inviting you to pray with me as we ask God's presence to permeate our conversation. Lord, we come to you. We come to you at the end of yet another week. We come to you as we are staring in the face of another holiday season. And as the world, again, is vastly different from the holiday season that passed last year, we simply would pray that your presence pervade our lives, that you preempt our desire to focus on ourselves and instead guide our minds and our hearts to you. We pray and we ask that you guide us in our conversation as well, for we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Choices, choices, choices. Life is full of them. What route you're going to take as you go to work or drop your kids off at school. What brand of food you're going to buy. Paper or plastic, actually, that isn't a choice anymore. Mask or no mask. Choices. You make dozens and dozens of choices throughout the day. Whenever I think of choices, I think about a Christian cookbook that I sold in one of my summers school boarding. It was aptly entitled Choices, and it had about 200 recipes, recipes that promised to lower your cholesterol and to lower your belly fat. Um, I must say that uh, the options that the recipes gave you also included this possibility to make them even healthier by supplanting and exchanging some ingredients. And the reality is, most times when we make choices, we know the correct path to follow. We know, for example, that eating non-saturated fats is probably better for us. We also know that getting eight hours of sleep is very beneficial. We know about the benefits of exercise and lowering our stress. We know that if we spend intentional time with those whom we love, we will develop flourishing relationships. So most of the choices that you have to make are choices that you already know the path that they will lead to. And yet somehow, For reasons that still escape me, my dear friends, we continue to make choices that are not beneficial for our lives. Whether it's overindulging or giving in to the temptation of anger or resentment, whether it's choosing to remain steadfast in our right to be right, whether it's Allowing the little things to become these enormous weights that you carry strapped on your back. Sometimes, for some reason, we make choices that ultimately hurt us. I can imagine that the whole of our existence then can be whittled down to a few choices. And as a parent and a pastor, I can find no sermon more apropos than a sermon that pleads with people that already know the right choices, whether it be your parishioners or your children. Maybe that's why Moses begins to close his excursus in Deuteronomy, this sermon that he lovingly delivers to a people that remains steadfastly stiff-necked by asking and talking about choices. Notice what he says. Deuteronomy chapter 30 begins with this promise. He says, when all these blessings and curses, so all the blessings and curses that comprise the sermon, when those have come on you, And you take them to heart wherever the Lord disperses you among the nations. And when your children return to the Lord, your God, and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul, according to everything I command you, then then the Lord God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations that he has scattered you. Wait a second, you might be thinking as you just delve into the first three verses of Deuteronomy 30. You're probably wondering if we've lost something or Moses has actually mistaken the place and the pulpit from where he preaches. After all, isn't Deuteronomy the sermon that he delivers as people are getting ready to conquer the land of Canaan? Why then does he spend some the end of his sermon this concluding these concluding remarks by talking about exile and dispersion well i want you to think about the possibility and yes i know it's a stretch that deuteronomy isn't just meant for a people that is ready To conquer a land, Deuteronomy is meant for you and for me and for a people that continues to struggle with choices. If you believe the scholars, they will tell you that the book of Deuteronomy was widely read during Josiah's reign the religious reform that he begins to institute is actually driven in large part by the rediscovery of some aspects of the both the book of Leviticus and the book of Deuteronomy and so it would seem that as israel is grappling with this idea This new generation of Jews who is reading the book centuries after Moses has delivered these words is actually applying them to their current condition. Imagine reading this as you begin to wonder what has led you to exile. What has it been that has driven the Babylonians to destroy and tear away your temple? What has led God's people now to sing songs of sorrow as they play their harps on the shores of the Tigris and the Euphrates? Certainly with the decadence of the Babylonian Empire and the new emergence of the Persian kings who began their reign by allowing prisoners of war to return to their lands, surely Israel is experiencing a renaissance, a revival of faith, as it were, because the possibility of returning to Jerusalem can be interpreted as nothing else than a miracle. In much the same same way that those ancient Israelites that first hear the words as they are prompted to come into Canaan with assurance that God and Yahweh will protect them, this new generation of Jews now returns to Canaan to rebuild and restore a temple and maybe a journey of faith. And so for both those who are encamped, full of possibility and promise as they are getting ready to now take up the land. And for those who turn back and return from a long period of exile, now looking at a future pregnant with possibility, that reality is the same. Success hinges on the choices that they will make, on the decisions that will orient their life after all when we look at our cumulative histories and our individual experiences we probably would say that life itself can be vastly different depending on the choices that you and I decide to embody so what are the choices that god places before his people. Listen to the words in the fourth verse
1: of Deuteronomy
0: 30. Even if you have been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord God will gather you and bring you back. And he will bring you to the land that belonged to your ancestors, and you will take possession of it. He will make you more prosperous and numerous than your ancestors. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. This is the first place in all of the Old Testament where God both initiates and consummates our faith. Up until this moment, the belief was that if Israel kept their end of the bargain, then God would do things for them. But you see, God is interested in much more than just a transactional relationship with you. And so the choice isn't based on this idea that if you choose right, then God will open up the Abundance of heaven and bless you in ways that you couldn't imagine. After all, a choice that simply seeks a benefit is not really a choice. What actually God is telling Israel is that the only choice that they need to worry and concern themselves with is acknowledging the presence of God in their life. Psychologist and theologian James Fowler talks about these six different stages of faith development. Fowler will argue that the first stage has to do with awe. That no one can develop and mature in spiritual matters if he or she doesn't begin his or her experience by feeling awe. And this awe that stems from either either this magnificent encounter with God or from devastating need alerts one to the presence of the divine. Perhaps that's why the first step in the 12 steps that attempt to save and restore people to wholeness start by asking us to recognize that there is indeed a higher power. Something greater than us. Indeed, the only choice then that Moses is placing before the Israelites is the choice to recognize the presence of God in their lives. And the promise is that once they recognize this, God will do something for them. For the first half of the Torah, up until we get to Deuteronomy chapter 30, the the promise is this. You need to circumcise yourself. Circumcision then is seen as this outward example of an inner decision that we've already made, namely the decision to partake in a covenantal relationship with Yahweh. Except here, Yahweh is saying, you didn't even manage to do that part right. You failed time and time again, and that's why you ended up exiled. Now, I want you to take stock just for the briefest of moments about on your life and think about the decisions that have led you to this particular place. If you are inhabiting a season in life right now that is marked by disappointment and marred by the experience of brokenness, my contention is that if you think hard enough, you probably will find some missteps. That you have taken along the way. The easiest thing then would be to condemn you, to point those out, to show you the error of your ways, and then to plead you to change. But maybe that's not what you need. Yeah, maybe God realizes that in the midst of brokenness, what we need more than anything else is peace that passes understanding. And so God doesn't, well, God doesn't linger over the missteps that Israel has made. Instead, God simply says, if you would only recognize me, then I will circumcise your heart. It reminds me of the words that one hears from the prophet Jeremiah in chapter 31, verse 31, that Yahweh will imprint his law in our hearts. You know, often we think that the choices we make are these decisions that influence our external behavior. But the truth of the matter is that scripture is clear. It states that our actions simply allow us to see what inner processes we are participating in. In other words, out of My words and my actions simply are a result of the inner desires of my heart. And so God is concerned with inner transformation, even in the midst of brokenness. That's why the author of Hebrews talks about Jesus as being the author and the finisher of faith. I want to read one more section to you in this chapter that talks about choices. The Lord your God will put all these curses, verse 7, on your enemies who hate and persecute you, and you will again obey the Lord and follow all the commands I am giving you today. Then the Lord your God will make you the most prosperous in all the work of your hands and in the fruit of your womb, the young of your livestock and the crops of your land. The Lord will again delight in making you prosperous, just as he delighted your ancestors. Now, this passage, this promise of inner circumcision, of a transformation of your inner life, of God spiritually forging inside of you the changes that you need that will empower you to make those decisions that are life affirming, this notion really causes our imagination to run wild. And perhaps that is why. In the book of Romans, speaking about how this transformation takes place, Paul quotes directly from Deuteronomy chapter 30. See if you can find the flavor in the text. Romans chapter 10, verse 4. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Moses writes this, again, in Deuteronomy 30 about the righteousness by the law. The person who does these things will live by them. And now he quotes directly. But the righteousness that is by faith says, do not say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? Or who will descend into the deep? That is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you. It is in your mouth and in your heart. And so Jesus Jesus desires to dwell within you. The only choice you need to make is to recognize what Christ is trying to do within your life today. One of my favorite writers, the great mystic and theologian, priest, and professor Henry Nouwen, writes about this particular chapter that it is of no benefit for you or for me to be able to cross the abyss that is space itself if we can't engage in this journey of self-discovery. Science, math, physics, chemistry, biology, and all the things that we have learned about our world in now mind matter not unless you are able, you are able to touch at that place within you where God is trying to speak. Jesus is trying to ask desperately. Won't you listen? Won't you choose to open your ears and your mind to the things that I am already doing in your midst? You know, as I was selling that book, Choices, on that summer of cold boarding, I decided that one of the best things that I could do was to try and learn how to surf. And so I enlisted the help of a friend and we went to a beach where the waves crashed mercilessly upon us. I looked at the vast expanse and began to wonder how I was going to survive My friend said, I only have one recommendation for you. Don't try to do too much. You get in trouble when you try to fight the waves. Do less. Do less and let the wave lift you up. Maybe that's the choice that Moses was trying to leave with the people. You know, as they are constantly tempted by, engage, by engaging in idolatry. Maybe that is what Paul wanted his early churches to realize. Maybe that's what Jesus wants to say to you today. Stop focusing on the missteps you have made. Or on the mistakes that have led you to this particular place in life. In just do less let grace and grace abundant lift you up so choose for yourself this day who you will serve choose to listen to the god that is speaking within you so still we get to talk about choices 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 And thank you for making the choice to join us this Sabbath as we talk about these decisions that impact not only our current life, but our life everlasting.
1: Well, I love this in that we all understand fundamentally a lot of what we're going through in in the sinful world revolves around the importance of having a choice. Mm God has got made it a great priority that we're not serving Him out of fear. It's out of choice and love and all that kind of stuff. And I loved how you started right off that God wants to speak. And one of the things while you were talking, because you, you spoke from Deuteronomy, and then you leap all the way up to Romans, um, and how Paul is actually quoting back into Deuteronomy. And to, to me, this is... A classic example of God speaking in a big narrative Mm -hmm. in that if we just isolate our exploration into Mm -hmm. one area, we don't have the complete picture. Mm -hmm. And one of the things I find very helpful is, especially when we look in the Old Testament, the way it tends to be expressed is like, God said, you got to keep the law. You didn't. So Mm -hmm. then I'm doing this. And it seems like if you take the Bible at the whole, that's not the complete Mm. picture. Yes, 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 yes. So kind of expanding on that a little bit, when you reference Paul, why do you think he's going back to that, all the Mm. way back to Deuteronomy to make that point? Stu, that is so amazing that you noticed
0: that. Um, because I think what you've just kind of teased out is this reality that is happening through three different epochs, if you will. So first, they're listening to Moses. And obviously, as we've been reading this week, it's not like Moses and the Israelites were devoid of making bad, poor choices. They made their litany of poor choices. Um, But then... Those poor choices continue to be made. And so it almost seems like Moses is pointing forward. And if you read back, particularly after Josiah's reign, during the time of the exile, you would look at it and you would say, Moses was talking about us. And so there's there's these two different eras in Israel's history, right? Exile, exodus, and exile. But then Paul enters the fray. And I think what Paul is trying to say is that Deuteronomy 10 uh, through 30, which is this this big section that deals with with this Mosaic sermon, finds its ultimate culmination, not in Israel returning to Jerusalem after the exile, but in Jesus. And so I think what we can, what we ought to do, probably as Christians, is look at the whole of Scripture like you're like you're advocating for through the lens of Jesus. You know, <clears throat> Paul is saying, yeah, I mean, the mountain and the law and all that stuff is great. Uh, the fact that Moses ascended that mountain and then descended with Allah from that mountain, that's great. But it's only great because now we believe that God himself descended from heaven, lived in our midst, died and now is ascended again. And so I think our understanding, and maybe this is what you're pushing us or teasing out, which I think is a... Is a profound point that I hope all of you remember as you're not only dealing with Deuteronomy, but the Old Testament as a whole, that Jesus becomes the interpretive lens for the Christian church. And so once you see these same texts through the prism of Jesus, these texts that seem to prioritize keeping the law have a new flavor to them. And not just for Deuteronomy 30 but for a lot of other quote-unquote problem texts in the in the Old Testament. I wonder how a reading with those would take, would shift if we took a Pauline approach to them. In other words, let's look back at them and say, okay, in the light of the incarnation, the death, and the resurrection of Christ, how do we read these texts now? And I think that has to be the first step that a Christian makes. Because as Christians, we believe that the clearest thing we can say about God is Jesus Christ. And so, yeah, let's, it, it's, it's this wonderful new way of doing biblical interpretation that prioritizes Jesus and begins
1: to explain everything from that viewpoint. Yeah, and that reminds me, I, I want to make sure we talk a little more about the transactional or Mm -hmm. not transactional relationship. Before we get into that, though, um, it hit me quite strongly when you pointed out that Moses is talking about exile while they're going into Mm -hmm. conquering. And what do you think that tells us about God? Again, you started by God speaking. What does it tell us about God speaking when if, you, if we were sitting there, like if we were one of the Israelites, like we just got out of Egypt. Mm-hmm. What, what are we talking about? Exile? Yeah. We're, we're, we're starting to figure out how to get in the place. <laughs> um, what does that tell us about God speaking that he chose to include that then?
0: I think that that tells us how graceful and merciful God is and how, how important The written word of God, when you're talking about this idea of speaking, of God speaking, the idea for the Jews was that when God spoke, a new reality was created. Words had a lot of power. That is why, by the way, and we've talked about this before, throughout the Old Testament, there's this impetus on Make sure that when you speak, you actually do what you say and don't curse people because the idea was that words had the power of bringing forth a reality that was going to be experienced not only in the present but throughout life. Our senior pastor, I think, has a great way of, of I think, articulating this in, in a much better way than I could ever uh, dream to do so. Uh, Randy talks about the timeliness and the timelessness of Scripture. And I think that's so apropos with this particular chapter, in the sense that as they're coming in to Canaan, for those people that are hearing the words as they're getting ready to conquer, the words are timely in the sense that Moses wants them to guard against being becoming complacent. Because often... We set ourselves, we set before ourselves these really easy goals that we can achieve that are measurable. Um, and then once we have this thing that we've been chasing, we kind of get complacent and we fail to realize that God's calling upon your life is much bigger than sometimes our goals might suggest. Um, So we have this beautiful building in front of us, uh, and we're actually taping from this beautiful building, for those of you who wonder where on earth are Stu and Miguel. Um, But we didn't just build this building because we needed more space. We built this building because we believed that God had a much bigger plan for us as, as a local congregation. And that the plan for God that God had for us was a transformation of lives, not only in Loma Linda, but across the world. Now, if our only measurable metric was Loma Linda, then we don't build this. But sometimes I think that God wants us to guard against complacency. And so God is trying to do that with the exile, with the Exodus Israelites, right? God to guard against complacency. The journey isn't done once you've. Reached Canaan. So that's the timeliness. The timelessness of scripture is that a new generation now in exile looks back at the words and says, Ah, oh, yeah, God hasn't left us. God's still sovereign, right? Um, it might seem like God's not in control anymore, but God talked about this centuries ago, and He's still in control. And so I think when God speaks, God speaks in ways that are both timely and timeless. And I think the timeliness has to do with guarding against complacency. So God is probably, if he's speaking timely to you now, he's trying to guard you against complacency, against the complacency of making your purpose and your vision and your mission too small. But God is also called speaking to us timelessly. And when God speaks timelessly, it's so that you look back and you realize that regardless of how bad your life has gone, the God of the the big vision is the God that is still in control and the God that will still make this wonderful plan for your life come into fruition in spite of your best attempts at foiling that plan.
1: Yeah, it makes me think of Uh, when the Israelites were going into a country only this time they were going into exile Mm -hmm. into Babylon how you know just before and during God was speaking and that listen I know you're going but you're coming back Mm -hmm. and um, here is another example of, of prophetic and I think Particularly, our denomination, our emphasis on particularly end time prophecy. I think there's a lot to learn in mm-hmm. this space of what role a prophetic speaking had in building mm-hmm. faith. Mm-hmm. You know, and maybe it's a little less about making sure you have the exact right. Um, is it Black Hawk helicopters mm-hmm. or low, you know, some of the But how important prophecy is, and here's an example where part of that is building faith, because I think, particularly as you look at the end time description, it's really talking about a reality Mm -hmm. that seems so absent of God. And, you know, when the Israelites are going into exile, where's God? God failed us to go back and say, listen, When you were going in to conquer this land, I told you about this possibility. And now that leads to my wanting to talk about the transactional. I find it very fascinating that God spoke and again included this exile thing. Because it's almost implying, I kind of know what's going to happen here. I don't want you to lose faith. Uh And my personal conviction is that when you, and I don't want to get into this whole conversation of pre-knowledge, you know, foreknowledge, mm-hmm. all, all that kind of stuff. But I think there is definitely evidence in the scriptures where even though God may know a certain outcome, you see him do everything possible, that you could have made a choice not to do that. And it was all, we, mm. at the end of time, we'll see that God did everything possible that we would not have made that mm-hmm. decision but we made it. But um, the thing I want to kind of transition to is your reference to, is our relationship with God just purely transactional? If you do this, I'll do this. And I think we can think of any relationship that we have that's meaningful is not transactional, or at least that's certainly not the priority. And we've talked about this now many times, you know, certainly in a, we're both married to Linda's, you know, <laughs> uh, we have that in common. Different, Lindis, but let's be clear. <laughs> <laughs> um, but, you know, you wouldn't say our relationships are transactional, but there's certain things that, you know, there's expected that happen. And I, I think it's really important to understand that when we relate to God, because particularly when we do something wrong, or when we're communicating to someone mm-hmm. or feeling a need to communicate to someone that we believe, and, and let's assume correctly, are, are violating what God mm-hmm. wishes. That, that's often expressed, it gets squeezed down to the sole priority is, are you doing it right or wrong? Mm-hmm. Are you doing it right or wrong? And we understand certainly sin, any sin is damaging to us. So the right and wrong is not, shouldn't be minimized, but what is God really saying when you want to talk about, is the relationship transactional? When he's giving, having Moses give a sermon that's saying, choose me, but he's including, but when you're in exile, what does that mean about that? transactional mentality, transactional emphasis in relating to God. Wow, what
0: a, what a great way of putting it, Stu. There was so much there that I think is really helpful for us today. Um, I think I, I completely concur with you the idea of prophecy. Uh, probably the purpose of prophecy, when it's well understood, is to provide comfort and so I can just imagine Israel saying, "Ah, yeah duh. and and that I think provides comfort uh faith then that that God knows what God is doing provides a lot of comfort. I remember driving with my boys uh right before. Uh, last summer, we we went uh, on this cross country trip, and my son, who's a worry just like me, uh, was constantly asking, "Dad, do you know where we're going?" And um, he would hear uh, the GPS on, on on my phone said say turn or, or go straight, et cetera, et cetera, and that provided him comfort because he knew that the GPS knew where we were going, and because the GPS knew where we were going, Dad knew where he was going. Now, there were places where we had dead zones and no cell coverage, and the anxiety that he felt ramped up because at those moments he said, well, I'm not sure if God knows where he's going. It wasn't until I told him, hey, son, I've traveled this road before that again I saw the the anxiety kind of drop. And so I think prophecy is God saying, Throughout human history, we tend to repeat these cycles. And so I've traveled this road before. I want you to have faith, and faith ultimately ought to provide comfort. Um, you talked a little bit about this idea of foreknowledge. And there's always kind of been this these two things that we have to hold in tension. And I hope we're comfortable with these tensions and with, with the paradox by now. Uh, between the idea of foreknowledge and freedom. So if God knows everything we're going to do, then are we really free to do whatever we want to do? And so there's always been kind of this tension. I I think you started us on the path to solving that tension when you're saying, yeah, God knows what we're going to do because God is a really good student of history and human behavior. And so because God knows us so intimately and so well, um, I can tell you pretty much what my kids are going to do before they do it, um, because I know them well. Now, that's not to say they're not free to surprise us, and I think God delights in the moments where we surprise Him. Um, And sadly, in the his, in the story of God in Israel, there weren't that many surprises. It seemed like Israel was really adept at falling into these sin cycles. And they fall into these sin cycles because they believe in a relationship with God that is transactional. <clears throat> if I do A, B, and C, God's going to do this for me. And you're right, no meaningful relationship is transactional meaningful relationships are transformational and transformational relationships are relationships where you're constantly being surprised by the other person so there's this awe and this excitement Um, i love it when christmas comes or when anniversaries come and linda still is surprised by whatever gesture i've planned Um, and i think she's surprised because the more i know her the more I'm able to anticipate the things that are going to provide joy and surprise to her. And so I think we too often, because it's easier, and let's be frank, um, we we like easy. We don't like hard work because it's easier to believe in transactional relationships. That's the box that we place God in. But God isn't interested in a transactional relationship. God is interested in a transformational relationship. And so I think that's why at the end God is saying, hmm, what I'm going to do then is I'm going to make you internalize the law. Because you're absolutely right. We don't want to minimize the devastating events and effects that sin has. I mean, to say everything's okay and you don't need to worry about sin is to to minimize the experience of millions and millions of people that have deeply been hurt by sin. So we we don't want to minimize that. What we want to say is that God's ultimate answer to sin isn't saying, hey, ask for forgiveness, give an offering, and we have this transactional process by which I'll forgive you, but rather Sin is a problem, and it's a problem that is so central to human existence that it's it's going to take nothing less than a total human being than a total
1: transformation of the human being for us to be able to allay and solve that problem. We've just got a few minutes left here, and I don't want to miss this. You referenced, and it's connected with what you just <laughs> said there. You referenced how Jesus ascending, and we talked just a few minutes ago how looking at whole Bible through the lens of, of Jesus. And I I feel like this is really, really important because I, I think sometimes when we talk about this right and wrong, people hear compromise. Mm-hmm. Here, we're saying it's not that important to follow the law. And I would passionately disagree with that. It's, it's putting it in the the mm-hmm. right space and what our role to that law is because, you know, if you're cooking something and you put um, salt instead of sugar. Mm. I've <laughs> you know, done that a couple times. <laughs> you know, it it makes a big difference. Yeah. And so, in essence, it's if you're making whatever it is, yeah, <laughs> uh, say it's a cake or, or or something, and you're supposed to be putting sugar and you put salt, um, that's not what it is. Mm-hmm. It's not salt, but if it's the wrong thing, it it ruins everything. Mm even though it looks right and all that kind of stuff. There's a lot of metaphors in there. But um, so it's not a compromise. So it's still important. But I think we all understand we, a lot of churches, uh, Christian churches, you've had a negative experience in a congregation, and it's usually rooted in that space where someone is more prioritizing the right and wrongness of something rather than the transactional. And here we have this situation, Deuteronomy, that on some level it feels like it reinforces that choose right and God's gonna do this. Choose wrong, you're gonna get this. And I think I heard you saying is when we talk about focusing Christ and that Christ ascended. And as we close, I'd like to have you kind of talk about how that might relate to this, mm-hmm. instead of the emphasis on right and wrong, as important as that is, Jesus ascending and the law being written on our heart—how yeah. does that fit in,
0: Stu? I this is where I, I I find, and for our friends out there, I I would invite them to to look at any of of the people who write on spiritual development. Uh, Fowler is 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 particularly helpful. So Fowler says. If we believe that faith is a living, breathing thing, then we need to believe believe that faith evolves. And if faith evolves, then you need to believe that at different stages of your faith development, you require and you necessitate different things to continue to grow. And so I want us to understand and I want to underline that there isn't anything wrong with a transactional relationship, as long as you don't stay in that stage. I have a four-year-old and trust me when I say, our relationship at this moment is really transactional because we need really clearly defined guidelines. And so I think that's where any faith development starts. It starts with saying, There's this moment of need and of awe where you recognize the presence of God. And so you kind of formalize this relationship in the only way that we know how, and that is transactionally. But that's not where you live. The hope is that you continue evolving and that you continue growing. And at the the last stage in Fowler's faith development is kind of this self-differentiated where you have this clear and concise understanding of who you are and the value that you possess because you are a son or a daughter of God. And when that happens, you are able to then say I I am going to do these things much in the same way that that Dallas Willard talks about it because I've had a a heart transformation. And it's not that I'm trying to gain something. It's just my default position now is to act and to think and to live like Jesus lived. And I know we talk about this and we say, well, yeah, that's everyone uh, wishes to get to that path. But I think Willard and and Fowler would argue that it's a process and it's it's a process that does require hard work.
1: And it does require a choice.
0: And it requires, so you make a decision and then you require hard work. This idea that grace, grace 86 is any type of hard work that the Christian needs to make is completely antithetical to the gospel. Jesus says, take up my cross and follow me. I don't know about you, but that seems like hard work.
1: Just cross.
0: Right. Just (laughs) take something up and follow me. That's hard. So we're not saying that we stop working. We're saying that the motivation for the working is different now. And I think the motivation now is because we've realized the inherent value that we possess because of what Christ is done. And I think the ascension of Jesus, right, This, this idea of incarnation and the fact that God made flesh now has returned to heaven and is coming back, that is good news and if anything else good news should impact the way we understand and we live out life which is why when we start seeing life through that lens if we hopefully get to this higher level of faith development life becomes easier now here's the last practical piece of advice when somebody that is, in Fowler's case, it's level six, uh, when somebody that's at this higher spectrum of faith development that has just been in the journey.
1: More mature.
0: For a longer time.
1: Um,
0: how, how, how is it if I try to talk to my four-year-old? Well, I get frustrated pretty quickly. Unless I remember, this four, he's a four-year-old. Um, if I'm trying to live and breathe and commune with him as if he was me, i get frustrated. And so for those of, of us who have been on the journey for longer, be compassionate. And my four-year-old gets super frustrated with me because he just wants the answer. He wants the easy. He wants the, okay, dad, tell me how it works. And so, for those of you who are barely starting out this journey in Christian lifestyle, be patient so compassion and patience i patience i think is are are the pathways by which we can kind of try to cross uh relate through the through this wide wide spectrum that is where we are in our faith journeys
1: amen well said
0: <laughs> well friends um with that uh, Wonderful endorsement by our own Stu Hardy. Um, I think it's time for us to to close with a word of prayer. So won't you join me as as we close? So Father, you are patient. Um, You ask for us to work and then you remind us that that yoke, that that cross that we carry is gentle because you are gentle. And so Lord, as we work, allow us to work Becoming more gentle. And as we start our faith journey, allow us to be patient. Growth will come. Father, we we just want to thank you so much for the reality of Jesus. And the reality of the one who says, choose me today. The reality of the one who continues calling to us and says, follow me. May that be the choice that we make today, for we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Make good choices this week. Until we see you again, may God richly bless you.